Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. If we could get a really strong consensus from the medical profession, rather like with knife crime, to say this is a public health issue, uh, doctors have a legitimate voice in it, and we as a medical profession are increasingly united in, in seeing that the route is not to criminalise the users and um, as a next step to actually provide a legal supply. That, that I think, would be enormously helpful. So what do you think? Are doctors the key to the drug policy debate? Should the medical profession get more involved? What do you reckon? This is Stop and Search on Scrooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with the UK. Here we go. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? As ever, thanks so much for joining us. Couldn't be more of a special one, I don't think. We're at the Queen Mary University with the British Medical Journal. How prestigious is that? So we're going to have no messing about, get straight into the episode. We've got Ian Hamilton, who is a mental health professional. We've got two editors from the BMJ, the Chief Editor-in-Chief, Fiona Godley, the Debates Editor, Richard Hurley. Speaks for itself, doesn't it? So let's get straight on with the episode. Thank you so much for the Queen Mary for hosting this. Thank you so much to Jennifer Randall for setting this up. Here we go. Okay, so I'm Ian Hamilton. I'm from uh, the University of York and I'm a psychiatric nurse um, and moved on from um, working with people with drug and alcohol and mental health problems into research and lecturing up at the University of York. So I've had two careers, I suppose, but one blended into the other. I'm Fiona Godley. I'm editor-in-chief of the BMJ. Um, I'm a physician by original background. And um, while we've, I've been at the BMJ, we've increasingly taken on this feeling that this that, that drug addiction and drug use and um, the response to drug use and the society around drug use was something that was a really a public health issue that we should speak up about. And we've been doing that increasingly over the last few years with help from my colleague Rich Hurley, who you're about to hear from. Hi there, I'm Richard Hurley um, and I'm Features and Debates Editor at the BMJ and I've been leading on our work on drug policy. Um, Please give a round of applause to our guests. 
as as you imagine, I was, I was trying to do some research on the BMJ, but it's it's the BMJ. How do you how do you research that? It's, it's completely out there. And I was I was looking at a, a video that you did, Fiona, on um, diet, uh, carbs and fats. And the first thing you said I, I found really interesting was it's not a contentious subject. You know, it's quite an easy subject. Where does drug policy rate on with regards to being contentious, controversial? With the feedback that you've had, with the just professional outreach that you've also done where does it rate in controversy that's interesting because i think diet diet is a contentious issue so i don't know what i was saying there (laughs) it's amazing the evidence around you know healthy diet is incredibly conflicted and um so but on drug policy it's interesting because i find that most people we've spoken to um understand why we've taken this up as an issue when you look at the sort of bodies that have already agreed that drug policy reform is an essential um, harm minimization public health issue, they're all the big, you know, standard um, establishment medical voices in the UK. So the BMA, um, quite a few of the medical royal colleges um, increasingly are accepting this and some have stated out in public that they agree that drug policy reform is essential. Um, So although it's an issue that people feel should be something that is hard to talk about. We haven't really found there's been no backlash as such. When when we first talk, started talking at the BMJ about climate change and saying this was a public health issue, I got an enormous backlash, personal attacks and people saying, you know, stick to your knitting and this isn't a medical issue and you're naive to think that climate change is an issue. This was obviously quite a few years ago. But with the drug policy thing, we haven't really had that negative response uh, that I'm aware of. Um, we've tried to stick to the evidence and the evidence is is really growing in support of this being a harm minimization issue and there are now various models around the world that we can turn to and really draw upon so and I, and I think the harm is becoming overwhelmingly apparent so it, it seems to me that the onus is on the side of people who support current policy to to say why they think that should continue because it seems to me and others that there's no good evidence for continuing it that's that's fascinating because i i would have thought that there'd be some controversy around it i don't know about you ian because Mm -hmm. ian is a prolific writer on the subject of drug policy in the independent bmj Mm -hmm. uh, i news um what kind of response have you had from a a academic professional when you have put these articles out do you get much backlash to be honest it's a mixture of both The, the thing that seems to create the most response is around cannabis um and, you know, the, I, I think part of the problem, not just with cannabis, with all drugs, is people have very preconceived views. Very few people are, are neutral on the subject, in my experience. You know, they have, including me, you know, I, I've got to, we've all got to sort of be aware of where our views have come from and uh, what's informed those. So I think, um, I suppose cannabis as an example, you know, if, if, for instance, I do a bit of research and it maybe shows that there are, particularly around uh, mental health, um, anything that would point to some harms, that usually creates a bit of response um, and sometimes even a phone call or two. Um, So I think sometimes, I, I don't really know what's behind that. My imagination tells me people don't want any sort of negative um, publicity given to um, stories or research um, that point to harms but of course any drug has harms as well as the potential to create pleasure and benefit. 
and I think I have to bring you in, Richard. Being the, the Bates and Features editor of the BMJ, you've obviously got a very unique view of this, of what's gone on. How, how does the debate seem to you at its current form? Well, um, I, I think we, were, we possibly were surprised that we didn't get more criticism for, for the articles we ran. The BMJ two years ago called for decriminalisation of, of all non-violent, small-scale drug uh, use, um, but also for, for legal markets in all drugs, um, for, for evidence to be built and, and explored um, to, see, to see whether uh, that would result in less harm. Um, and, and I think it is interesting that um, we, 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 we didn't get um, attacked um, by the media or by the public or by doctors. And um, I think you have to think about the statistics here. There are around 2,500 avoidable, completely avoidable drug deaths in this country every year. Um, Scotland is the drug death capital of Europe. There's a quarter of 15-year-olds say they took a drug, an illegal drug, in the past year. I mean, who knows what they were taking. Um, and that's why I think doctors are behind this, because it's so obviously a huge health um, issue. The the death is just the tip of the iceberg. There's uh, whole communities and families, um, you know, for each, of those, for each of those deaths that are affected. And Fiona, you, you're from a, a prolific medical background for your family how many siblings have you got that have, that have gone into the field <laughs> uh, three three gp siblings and uh yeah they're all my siblings who are three of them are gps yeah so, so what's it like both personally and professionally within this subject matter specifically do you have many conversations with with the profession with regards to drug policy well what's what we found very interesting um is amongst the people that we the bmj have managed to pull into this debate or to have support from in this debate um, the two colleges so far who have not been so willing to come out in favour or in, even if they haven't made a public statement they just haven't really been wanting to engage are the Royal College of GPs and the Royal College of Psychiatrists and this isn't to criticise them because I know this is, this is difficult I mean I don't want to minimise how difficult it can be but it seems to us that both in both cases that may be because they are the ones who most see the harm and this is the point that Ian makes that you know we do know drugs do harm and that ironically is why I argue and others argue for legalization it's not that they the the, the, the people who want to continue prohibition say well you know you must think you must want more drug taking and my view is no I want less drug taking I want safer drug taking I want um, drug taking that is highly regulated and that people know what they're taking. They can do quality controls. We can have age restrictions and, and, a, and, a, and a legal high-quality market for it. So I think the problem for the psychiatrist is they see a lot of the harm and it's very hard then to, to take that leap to say, OK, we need to to have, have drug reform. It's much easier for them to say we need tighter, tighter prohibition than we're currently achieving. So those are the kind of conversations that we're... Well, I mean, that, that's a conversation that's very hard to have. We haven't had a lot of interaction with the psychiatry community yet, but I think that's one thing we want to develop. And um, I think that if we could get a really strong consensus from the medical profession, rather like with knife crime, to say this is a public health issue, uh, doctors have a legitimate voice in it, and we as a medical profession are increasingly united in, in seeing that the route is not to criminalise the users and um, as a next step to actually provide a legal supply. That, that I think, would be enormously helpful. 
and, and that's the point we was making before we came on is that there's almost this counterintuitive nature isn't there Richard that drug prohibition seems like a good idea on the face of it so when you try and explain that regulation and legalisation in quotation marks that almost infers a free-for-all and harms how, how does the BMJ and you personally presenting this this case go about making this palatable um that that's a great question um and uh, yeah i think that that we've we've been told for at least 50 years that drugs are bad and therefore they should be banned it's sort of ingrained isn't it i mean and i i grew up with just say no um so to 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 change that group think is i think a real challenge especially when legalization means so many different things um from um from a you know a government monopoly to uh, uh to, to 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 a sort of to a free for all or with um you know industry selling things through every corn shop um so yeah there's a lot of nuance and we have to be completely honest that some of those may some of those models may cause more harm than there is now i mean it's it may not be that it's not not the end of the um um it's not the end of the story it's the beginning if you like and we have to be keep being vigilant and we have to go out and look for the evidence of of, of harm and of benefit of what we're doing and be prepared to to change our minds and and to do something different if we find that it's not working but one thing we can be sure of and that's that the the current situation is letting an awful lot of people down all over the world and in our country so um so I think we have to start by saying there must be there must be a better way, and we should go out and and explore what those might be, what they might look like, gather evidence, and change policy depending on what we find. Can we trace the timeline of the BMJ? Of it was twenty sixteen that you came out, as it were. We, we're using that terminology and came out. We were saying this before we went on um, for a change in policy, but before that, when when was it starting to get on the radar? When did you think actually we might want to start? looking at this and debating this and putting the evidence out there? Um, I'm afraid I can't remember exactly the time, but um, I've been editor since 2005, and I think all, all of that time and before my time, we've had a tendency, we've had a sort of, of in, in favour of harm minimisation in relation to um, all sorts of things um, that, that are bad, potentially, or considered bad, but actually um, you can approach them in such a way that you make, you make them have associated harms that are even worse and so I think that's a a, a conceptual framework which is very common in public health and the BMJ is a public health journal as well as a clinical journal so we've always had that that sense I think Um, and we've covered the um, we've covered the issues around other um, ex- around the world examples of where drug policy has changed we've covered those in news we've had um, uh, Steve Stephen Rolls wrote a piece for us in I can't think when that was but that was very influential um, ago. about 10 years ago which which basically made the arguments about um, uh, decriminalization that actually did get some backlash but very focused from a few specific individuals who tried to question the evidence base that he had used and uh, doubted the evidence coming through from Portugal and elsewhere um, so we allowed that debate to happen and it just seemed with so many of these issues that the BMJ covers that you find yourself the arguments are stronger on one side you're trying to do balance but it just seems stronger on one side so it becomes very difficult to to, to, to not notice that and so then you find yourself um, personally convinced 
Uh, I'm a mother of teenage children and um, cannabis and ketamine and cocaine are available on our doorstep. <laughs> no quality control, no age restraint. Um, um, so the current, it's evident to me as a, as a, as a parent that the current system isn't working. Um, we find people coming to us with commentary. For example, um, we've published some stuff from um, Anyone's Child, which is Parents Against Prohibition, incredibly strong um, testimony from parents who've lost children to drug use, saying that prohibition killed their child. And that's very, very hard to not... Um, not take on board. I think that's that's something of they're they're the voices people should listen to. And then we hear uh, of leap, and we hear of law enforcement officers and um, senior police officers who are saying the current system is not working. So all of this gives one courage. And um, the BMA's report, which came out, sorry, Rich, I'm going to ask you when the BMA's report came out. But again, quite a long time ago, I'd say five yeah, more, five or more years ago, the BMA has a, a board of science which does very excellent. Um, evidence-based summaries of this kind of thing and they took on this issue and they did this very good report which came down in favour of drug policy reform. So, you know, gradual courage builds, builds, builds. So writing the editorial, which again, on the date of which I can't remember, um, was was um, last year, was it? Where, where? I mean, sorry, I'm just going to read my own words here, which sounds very, just to remind myself what we said. I think it was um, in May. In May of this year. year. The BMJ is firmly behind efforts to legalise, regulate and tax the sale of drugs for recreational and medicinal use. This is an issue on which doctors can and should make their voices heard. So it, it seems like a bold statement, but it was built on a growing surge of evidence and uh, other people saying the same thing. It was huge, wasn't it, Ian, when, when that announcement came out, when the BMJ actually pardon my terminology, nailed the colours to the mast in such a way and used those terminologies. It was massive, wasn't it? It really impacted in our sector, and I use our sector of jump mm. reform loosely. It, it was big, wasn't it? It was, and you know, the um, I, I don't know how much it filtered down, but it, to my mind, it's really important that journals like the BMJ, with the reach they have, the credibility they have, um, make those statements. You know, one of the the biggest problems anyone has with with drugs when they use a stigma, um, and you know. That, you know, it, it's very difficult to know how we're going to overcome that. You know, the report this week from the UN around what's happened in Portugal, you know, where they decriminalise drugs, um, reports that, you know, however many years on that is, at least five or six years on, uh, stigma still persists. So decriminalisation on its own won't, you know, solve stigma. A bit like Richard saying, it's the start of something. And to me, that seems like the biggest challenge. You know, policy is one thing. But how we can um, ensure people aren't marginalised and, um, you know, for some they're, they're very vulnerable um, for all sorts of reasons. So it's kind of layers of stigma that get added um, where we other people, as sociologists would call it, you know, we, we um, see them as different in mm. some way. And yet the scale of drug use is, you know, um, we all of us will know someone, all of us probably have used um, one substance or another, and even if we haven't, we'll know someone that has. So I think the challenges are big. I'm, I'm not sure what the solutions are, one or two ideas, I'm sure we all have. But um, so coming back to your original points, I, you know, um, fair play to the BMJ. It's fantastic when you see that kind of very public, uh, very direct support for uh, moving things on. And just to say, um, the the um, 
Economist and the New York Times have both come out over the last few years very, very strong. There's that wonderful editorial in the New York Times. I hope I've got the right... It was the New York Times, wasn't it? And, and Eddie Mayer read it out on on um, the BBC Radio 4, um, which just absolutely said exactly this. So... These aren't new ideas, but it's a, it is, I do understand it's a question of who says them. And the more we can get other bodies within the medical profession, within public health, um, and obviously the law enforcement side of it, hugely important. These, these are people who are directly affected and impacted, and then parents of children um, who've died. Those are very important voices to capture and to, to build on. We were saying earlier that it's actually quite tricky to get the opposite side of the debate now, isn't it, Richard? It's it's very difficult to to get anything other than potentially the Daily Mail and Peter Hitchens to to actually stand up and make a cogent argument. Have you tried to to get that other side of the the fence? Um, yeah, we certainly have. Um, it's you know it's incredibly important to look at the the, the arguments against reform um, and 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 to think about those and. Certainly, in terms of decriminalising um, or criminalising the people who use drugs, um, I would say, in in my experience and 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 in in health sectors and in medical sectors, I haven't come across anybody really who has coherent argument as to why you would lock up or punish, um, criminally punish um, pe- people who use drugs who 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 haven't done anything else wrong. Um, the legalisation and regulation uh, of drugs, the supply side stuff, that is certainly more controversial and you can find more mainstream people who have concerns about that. But but decriminalising small-scale users, I mean, yeah, apart from the Daily Mail and Peter Hitchens, it's hard to find anyone who would support that kind of policy. And, and it must be difficult from your side, someone that is presenting cases at all points, to to keep that 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 line of not being biased because we know most people in this room I'd imagine are for drug law reform of some sort but professionally to put out these cases out there how difficult is it to be an editor in doing what you're doing um I think we're we're interested in pragmatism and in evidence-based policy making um so I I I don't think we are ideologically wedded to, to to any of this and if evidence comes along that we've got it wrong then We'll hold our hands up and do some, you know, do something else. But at the moment, it seems pretty clear that what we've got is failing an awful lot of people. Um, I, I thought it was, and it was incredible. Earlier this year, the Royal College of Physicians, you know, a very conservative um, body that's not going to come out and say something it doesn't, you know, isn't firmly behind. It's not going to, it doesn't want controversy. Uh, it came out in support of decriminalising low-level drug use, no criminal penalties for drug users um which is also in, you know incredibly um important and what's noteworthy is that there it was you know the the college was not shot down in flames the i don't think the daily mail took it to task um and and but other people are finding this too you know politicians um and um uh, doctors organizations other professional bodies can be very very nervous about this they think that if they if they say something uh, or call for reform the the public are going to destroy them and the media are going to destroy them the tabloid media are going to destroy them and it just doesn't seem to happen i think the public have moved on uh, and it's time that the politicians uh, and everyone else uh, policy makers move on too but that's always one of my questions is how much does public opinion influence politicians and how much 
do policymakers influence what's going on at grassroots? Ian, have you got an opinion on that? I have. I mean, I, I think that's where the block is. Um, you know, when you think back to uh, smoking, smoking cigarettes, at the time the, the Labour government was really a little ahead of public opinion in banning smoking in public places. So we know that some politicians will be brave and act ahead of what they, how they read the political landscape or the voting landscape, to put it that way. Um, but I, I think that's where the block is. You know, I really do. I, I think, you know, what, what does it take? You know, record numbers of deaths. Um, we, we've too much evidence in a way. So evidence isn't going to shift it. And for me, one of the really interesting things that happened this year was um, the Caldwell case. Um, so when you have a child who's suffering and all other interventions have been tried, but the one that remains um, and the one that seems to work is um, cannabis oil in effect and how rapidly that shift in policy happened. And that was because public opinion was with it. Um, but it, it really struck me. You know, you can hear these words, you know the arguments, that it, it's, you know, it takes um, a very individual, personal case to change policy. So I knew all that. But to see it happen in front of your very eyes, so in a matter of weeks, wasn't it? You know, from beginning to end... Um, I mean, what's happened since is maybe for another podcast, but um, nonetheless, I, I was impressed by that, how quickly it happened and um, all the factors that led to that. So, but I don't know, we, we don't have decent polling on public opinion, mm -hmm. so I think we're all kind of guessing a bit. Um, you know, there's the odd Mori poll and whatnot that's carried out, but, you know, they're samples of a thousand. Um, so to my mind, that, that's what's holding this up is, you know, we might all be united in this room, but um, it's outside of this room, I think, where probably the barrier is sitting. Can I get a show of hands? Um, just obviously, this is going to be completely uh, evidence-free. Mm -hmm. um, can you put your hand up if you agree with drug policy reform that we need it? So yeah, most people. And who's who's a bit sceptical? We need more evidence. So, well, thank you for being honest because it's it can be a bit foreboding because I think. Until, I don't know, I think I've been in this since about 2010 properly. And there's been a shift within that within that time. There's been, you were still on the fringes, you were still a little bit marginalised. As you said, Steve Rolls' essay, I think, came out, I think it was around 2010, 2011. And, and that was when it was getting quite hot and contested. But now, um, and I think I've heard you speak on this, Richard, that... It's just the, the evidence is just overwhelming and almost to the point of too much, as Ian just said. But how do we get that 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 policy shift within Westminster? Can you solve that for us right now? <laughs> um, well, yeah. Uh, well, no. But um, <laughs> um, I mean, there have been there have been some opinion polls, haven't there? And, and was there one about five years ago? A Mori poll was that only a couple of thousand people? I okay, but I mean, and and then the Royal Society for Public Health um, um, had a poll that it ran, I think, as well, and they showed a split in um, public opinion. But I think the question is also very difficult. I mean, if you ask people, do you want drug policy reform? It's it's that means so many different things and it's very hard to know whether that means things could get better or, or get worse but certainly I think um, decriminalisation of individual small scale drug users um, it, seems, it seems so um, 
you know, the evidence seems to suggest that around harms, but it also seems the right thing to do, you know, around human rights, I mean, and and for economic reasons. I mean, you know, punishing people and then potentially locking people up is an incredibly expensive and ineffective response to to this issue. Um, But I guess the the answer is going to be about votes, isn't it? And the way to get political change is that this has to... Uh, have some appeal to politicians it has to be a priority for politicians to 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 take on the cause um how have you found politicians Ian? i imagine you've dealt with them a fair amount as as i have and we were speaking earlier that there's a lot in favor now not so much against that are willing to speak out how have you found the political battlefield if, if i may use that terminology well just to broaden out slightly what's really surprised me is how slow labor has been on this um, you know, it's really shocked me. It, it seems like such an obvious um, policy to be really taking forward. Um, I think they're getting there now. Again, probably since um, I don't know if it's coincidence or not, since Billy Colwell and and those kind of cases. So on, you know, I think cannabis again has been the um, kindling for that in a way. Um, the Conservatives, I kind of understand a bit, but again, I, I really don't know. You know, you speak to people privately and, um, you know, it's it's clear where they stand. You know, they, they, they understand what the evidence is. Um, and again, you know, I, I come back to what what's it going to take? You know, if we, we now have more drug deaths and we have more people dying due to drugs than we do on roads in this country. Um, both are risky activities, but we don't, you know, ban people driving. Um and we, we've invested. It's it's partly about resources as well, isn't it? And um, you know that that's another um, political aspect as well. Is we're we're seeing deinvestment at such a rapid scale in in drug treatment. And um, again, you know, I've got to, to kind of declare my bias. I only sort of see and get involved in in people who end up um, developing problems with drugs. But that really concerns me. You know that we don't have. Um, proper investment in that and I guess you know scrambling around for, for any kind of upside and all that the the more harm that's done through drugs and that is increasing through mortality and a range of other things the more people around those those individuals are touched um, but it tends to be people from certain sections of society um, that, are, that are harmed and uh, those communities as well. Uh, and this is going to be a, a kind of stating the obvious question, Fiona, but how important is it to have doctors on the side of this debate? Because presumably they're the ones with the, the Hippocratic Oath that do no harm. I'd imagine that most people in, in general society are going to have a sympathy with a doctor's voice. Well, I, I do think it's very important. I, I certainly think doctors speaking or, 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 or siding with prohibition, you know, um, that 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 would be hard. It's, it's doctors who think that prohibition is the right policy, um, rather like with other policies that, that might be questioned or, or challenged, like assisted dying and um, uh, like, you know, knife crime, any of those things. If you've got prominent medical voices speaking for, in this case, prohibition, then that gives politicians pause and quite rightly so you might argue but I feel that actually they those voices may be disproportionately listened to and I think one of the things we'd like to understand is the current mood more broadly across the medical profession so what we've seen historically is with smoking it was doctors um, smoking habits that really um, made 
a big sh- help to help to shift public opinion as doctors stop smoking and as the evidence base of doctors with lung disease, um, which was part of the, 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 the research studies that were done, um, showed the harm. That was what began the the the, the, the change in, in smoking habits, I think. And climate change has been another one where we've tried to get doctors on board because we recognise that um, clinicians have that voice, they have that respect, and um, politicians really do want public opinion to shift before they're willing to make a change. So we've learnt those things, and I think this is absolutely the case with drug policy reform. So as I've said already, one of our objectives is to try to see where the psychiatrist community sits on this, uh, to understand their concerns, to listen to them and and, and not to minimise them by any means, but to, to really try to get that point across that we're not talking about drugs being a good thing, we're talking about them being uh, um, a, a cause of a great deal of, of harm at the moment, but that harm is made much worse by the the criminal element and that doesn't just mean mental health harm but it means um you know the the prostitution um the the young children who are being turned into drug mules um the the violence um and all of those issues and people being locked up and then their drug use being made worse by their time in prison so those are the kind of issues that one wants to elevate and my sense of the direction of travel is if we can get the evidence up there if we can have it widely discussed and debated um, and we can watch with real attention the national um, uh, efforts in other countries and really understand what that's telling us then I think the politicians will gain courage we're looking at the uh, makeup of the um, the drug sorry what's it called the the Global Commission on Drug Policy um, and the fact that they're all former. <laughs> they're all former everything. There's no one in, in, in office. We know that David Cameron, Cameron, before he became Prime Minister, was in favour of drug policy reform. He becomes Prime Minister, has to drop it, or feels he has to drop it. Um, Nick Clegg was in favour while in office. You know, well done for him. Uh, but we're just very interested in how few acting politicians are currently in favour. I think we need to really listen to them, encourage them and, and reach out to others to, to try to give them courage that this is a, an issue that has increasing public support. The only thing I would add to that is um, it was actually something that I did in the BMJ around um, I think the slight danger is the, the evidence is so strong the, the public message or the professional message is to be in favour of prohibition that we, we almost have quashed the, those who I think need winning over. Um, so you mean in favour of, of reform? Yes. So, so my concern is that there is, I th- I've no evidence other than personal experience, but I think medics, nurses, whoever, have learned what the correct thing to say is. Mm. And attitudes haven't really changed. And, and that really worries me. Is, um, it's a bit like training. Tra- training, you know, around race, around... Um, ethnicity, whatever, will teach you the language you should adopt to be to um, continue working. But your underlying attitude hasn't actually changed. And my suspicion is, not all doctors, but I, th- I think some perhaps maintain quite a, a strongly held view that drug use is wrong, but they know that they shouldn't express that. That's, that's interesting. I, I completely agree with that. Um, and Richard, I think you, you're quite a good one to bring in on this point because, again, for someone that's in charge of the debate 
and how this is presented, the question I want to bring to you is how important is the presentation of the debate? Because you've mentioned yourself that some people don't understand the difference in the nuances in regulation and legalisation. And decriminalisation makes sense, but for our position, it doesn't go far enough. How key is it that, especially the BMJ of what it does, that we we explain this and we have an open access to, to evidence and data? I think it's absolutely crucial that we are incredibly precise about what we're and clear about what we're talking about um um and that we yeah yeah that we look for for data and evidence um on benefits and harms and and are open about all of those things absolutely do you think there's more that we can do as well within this do you think there's this simpler messaging that we can do or do we need to go further with the evidence and, and really delve in well, i mean personally i i think that on decriminalizing um, you know, low-level drug users. There's not much else that that can be said, really. And I think it's you know really telling that um, college or Royal College of Physicians has come out in support of this. But so is the BMA, the Royal College of Public Health, the government's own independent committee on drug misuse recommends this um, policy change to decriminalise um, all low-level drug use. So I'm, I I don't know what else there really is to to say about that or how that could be. Um, made clearer, but I, I think you're absolutely right that on 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 the issue of the supply side, on the the legal um, markets, there's there's a there's there's a great need to be very cautious uh, or very careful in our language and to look at evidence and look at what different options different uh, options that other countries are exploring and see see what difference that that makes because there is a huge difference between having you know a government monopoly. Um, in in cannabis, where you can only get it from you know one dispensary in in one particular time of the day or something, and something being sold in every corner shop without any kind of uh, restrictions at all. Those there are huge differences uh, between those options, and and it's not surprising that um, people might worry. Um, uh, and we also need to look at uh, uh, you know the the drug drugs that are currently regulated, like alcohol and tobacco, which have caused huge harms. Um, we shouldn't be complacent, and we should we should remember that um, um, you know drugs are harmful. Um. What what can we learn from existing models of alcohol and tobacco? Is is there much that we can glean from that? Go on, Fiona. Well, I, I I I think that. Um, I think I think the alcohol story is very interesting. Um, alcohol has been so much part of our culture, um, and and you know a lot of people great take take great pleasure from moderate alcohol uh, drinking, and it's a great social lubricant and all those things. But it does cause immense harm, and um, I'm not the person to list those harms. But we've we've done quite a lot of increasingly publishing and awareness around those harms, um, not only in terms of the social impact of you know violence and crime, and um, but also um, and you know domestic abuse, but also um, physical harm, and increasingly young women in particular, but young people generally drinking far more and far more potent alcohol than than, than was the case, um, and cheap alcohol in supermarkets and um, just the cultural acceptance of alcohol in sport and all those things so I think that we've learnt we've, we've, we've become blind to the harms that alcohol is causing and I think that does put the um, certainly the cannabis debate I'm, I'm putting to one side the, the sort of harder drug debates but the, the cannabis debate and the alcohol debate do seem to be incredibly 
um, it, it's sort of weird that as a as a culture we have um, got this much more hysterical attitude towards cannabis, um, especially um, the the sorts of cannabis that used to be smoked, the sort of milder cannabis with with lower THC and higher CBD um, ratio, um, compared with um, the way in which we've tolerated alcohol. And I and it's hard to exactly understand how that happened. And historians, I'm sure, are already. Um, you know, pouring over this as a, as, a, as a historical event. But I think we do need to look at regulating, fiercely regulating addictive substances across the piece, and that alcohol should be much more heavily regulated, while we also look at being more liberal about um, things like cannabis. So from someone that's involved in mental health, Ian, how, how, do you, how does that fit with your thinking? Well, what I always find interesting about alcohol is we... Somehow or another, we've managed to separate alcohol and drugs, haven't we? So we talk about drugs and alcohol, um, and that tells you everything you need to know. Um, you know, how's that happened? Um, and I've no idea, but um, I, I suppose the thing I'm, I'm kind of mindful of at the moment is the one thing we, we must learn from is the very effective way the tobacco and alcohol industry have interfered with the evidence and, more importantly, with policy. Um, David Nutt, you know, made a great call a couple of weeks ago saying that all MPs should be breathalyzed before they vote. Um, and I'm up for that yeah. if they are. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just the tentacles within Parliament, within policy making around alcohol are incredible. Um, and a colleague up at York, Jim McCambridge, is, has got a welcome grant looking at um, how widespread, how, um, how much influence the alcohol industry has had over public health mm. policy. Mm. Um, and here we are at the start of a new journey with cannabis. Um, and I was doing an event last night, and the first person that approached me after the event was um, someone from Barclays, um, which rather took me aback. Um, I wasn't expecting that. But, um, you know, the, and we've, you've probably seen the stories in the newspapers about Coca-Cola taking interest, etc., uh, etc. Et so we, we're at the beginning of that journey mm -hmm. with cannabis, and I think if we don't learn... <laughs> from what's happened originally with tobacco, uh, with, with um, alcohol. And, you know, there's some pretty good evidence emerging about how the industry shares intelligence. Uh, so, for example, um, you know, rather shockingly, 40% of tobacco smoked in this country is smoked by people with mental health problems. Now, the industry isn't unaware of that. Uh, how would you not be, you know, aware of um, one of your biggest groups, one of your largest markets? Um, and the same goes for cannabis. Um, you know, we, we know that people who have um, particularly mental health problems are, are more likely to use cannabis as well as some other drugs as well. So I think whether you look at this from a health perspective, a commercial one, a political one, um, public health, you know, you need to be aware of the way the industry operates. Um, the, the difference in budgets is Samson and Goliath, you know, compared to the advertising budget of BATA and um, um, compared to Public Health England, you know, it's, it's not a fair fight. This is where we need to be careful because, from certainly from my perspective of this debate, is that if the government don't start doing something soon, the commercialisation is going to is going to run away with its policy. And this is where, like you said, the alcohol and tobacco, we we can learn successes from it. We've banned marketing. We've we've done a lot more around uh, education and health policies. If we applied that same thinking to cannabis now, we could probably get somewhere with further improving public health before a potential crisis happens. 
do you think that politicians are ready to grasp that nettle and actually do something about it? Or do you think we're still going to be following the examples of Canada and, and seeing the evidence that emerges from there? How forward-thinking are our politicians going to be? Well, I'm pretty pessimistic. You know, I think money's involved. Um, and the problem when money gets involved is there are a lot of vested interests. Mm. Um, and, you know, a bit like the Billy Colwell case, you know, um, personal stories move policy, but nothing shifts policy faster than money. Mm. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. And it, it sounds a bit cynical and jaded, but um, I think it, it's a bit like uh, being a clinician. You need to be self-aware. We need to be kind of collectively aware of, of when those things happen and, and make sure they're transparent. Um, and we, we had the example, didn't we, a week or two ago of Public Health England. Um, taking, uh, money from, taking, taking money from drinkerware. Yeah, you know, I mean, that oh, really is shocking. From, yes, really Absolutely shocking. shocking. Um, so, you know, for something so obvious to happen, no defence from Public Health England on that, as far as I'm aware. Actually, I should just, uh, in case my, that my, uh, they think they took money, which is what I said first no. off. They took support from Public yeah. from Drink Aware, yeah. which is funded by the drink industry. So, uh, I, I, the whole the whole uh, issue about commercial um, commercial influence is terribly important, and I think your point in is really crucial that. Uh, that the, the, there there is a whole industry behind behind cannabis. Um, to take that for an example, we've got GW Pharmaceuticals, the, and the, and that Britain is the great largest exporter of of medical or legal cannabis um, in the world. Um, and there is always the risk that one way or another, um, the industry behind these currently illegal but perhaps one day to be made legal drugs will behave in the same way as the tobacco and alcohol industries. So we, we mustn't be naive to that potential. But the other interesting fact that came up in discussion before we came on air was about the fact that I gather that um, alcohol use has gone down in America where there is a cannabis is available. Now, the drinks industry in Britain is not going to want to have their market reduced. Um, so they will be, I guess, because they're very sophisticated people, lobbying against a change in the drug policy um, laws in order to maintain their monopoly on recreational drug use. I've heard you speak, Richard, as well about medicinal cannabis and how it's a contentious issue because it's very difficult to get good, robust evidence on it. You, clinical trials aren't quite there on it. There's there's small studies, and and as Ian said, we got we got anecdotal evidence. So how how can we progress this issue? Um, is it going to be in the realms of anecdotal or can we actually get more progress on medicinal cannabis? Well, well I think um, it's been agreed, hasn't it, to reschedule cannabis uh, as a class two from from class one, the most restrictive um, schedule uh, under UK law. Um, so cannabis's current scheduling means that there's very, very little um it's very very hard to do any research and it's impossible almost impossible to prescribe um and so the rescheduling to class 2 will will make research easier and um uh, and so there we'll be able to gather more evidence um do you think that's a, a positive thing Ian do you think there's a harm reduction within this i do the the main concern over in cannabis at the moment is is the false hope that's been given to people you know so even on epilepsy the evidence um, would, would it, you know, the way some of this is reported and, and talked about, um, I'm concerned that, you know, 
every parent with a child who's epileptic is, is given false hope that cannabis is the answer, and that's clearly not the case. But even more worryingly, you know, again, a, a recent event, people were, you know, it's great that you hear stories about people who have terminal cancer, you know, they, they use a bit of CBD oil and that's turned around. We, we don't have any of the evidence around cancer, and yet all sorts of outlandish claims are being made. Um, and, you know, again, we were saying earlier, that the paradox is the Home Office is asking for evidence around all this after having denied researchers like ourselves years the opportunity to do the research. So, you know, you almost find it a bit farcical, really. Um, so we're in a bit of a bind at the moment where things are moving quite quickly on policy, but we don't have the evidence base to inform that. Mm. Um, and, you know, NICE put out a call yesterday um, for uh, evidence around medicinal use of cannabis. They'll um, come out with a report next year, but that's still a year away. And in the meantime, mainly in America, it has to be said, you know, there are commercial companies who are playing on people's uh, vulnerability and, and um, giving them false hope. It's also very, <coughs> very complicated, isn't it? Cannabis mm. in terms of, of it being a, a natural substance with uh, or a natural a, a living organism, a natural a natural product with uh, hundreds of different chemicals, hundreds of different cannabinoids, hundreds of terpenes. Um, and we, we really know very, very little about, about most of them, all of them, <laughs> almost all of them. I mean, in, in some ways, as researchers, we have to put our own house in order. You know, when you, particularly when you think about the links between uh, all the research that's been around cannabis and psychosis, we still don't have a standard way of measuring cannabis. Um, so, you know, here we are in 2018, and I can put out a study that um, says one thing about cannabis, and all I've done is ask a binary question, have you ever used cannabis, yes or no? Um, you know, it's there's a lot we can do... Um, amongst ourselves really to put things right before we point the finger at anyone else right this is where i dare to ask excellent we got one would you mind stepping up here so i can get you on the microphone i apologize for that normally we're on wireless mics but we're on a budget today so sure um, thank you so much. My name is Erica. I'm an MSc student in the Global Health Systems Program here. This is actually the end of my first week. Um, I'm from California, and so I've been thinking about decriminalization of cannabis a lot, um, especially as implementation started to roll out this year. Um, and in Los Angeles County, which is very near where I'm from, um, there's a program um, in which uh, the second round of licensing for cannabis um, businesses of all kinds go to social equity applicants, so people who have been directly affected by the war on drugs, either through imprisonment for low-level nonviolent drug offenses or because of um, their residence in a zip code that was affected um, disproportionately by the war on drugs. And I was wondering if you could speak to um, the way that that might look in the UK. I, there's been a lot of... Um, a lot of politicking about the rollout of that because it has not it has not gone smoothly. I have a friend who is actually applying as a social equity applicant and has most of what she has heard is, oh, we'll we'll find you a corporate sponsor. So um if you could speak to that, thank you. And this is something I'm covering as we speak. Um I'm looking at the uh, Massachusetts model. Um there's a, a a brilliant person that works out there called Charmaine Title that did work with Leap. And again, the social equity program is exactly that. Anybody that's been harmed by the war on drugs has got a place in a new industry. We've seen in Seattle recently that uh, all drug previous drug convictions have been wiped. These are all things that happen on the other side of reform that 
we need to start having these conversations now in this country because there's behind closed doors meetings that are going on right now in in London with big business, as we just mentioned here, of people getting involved in the industry because it's nascent. They're seeing it just on the shelf. But people that have been campaigning, uh, people with MS that have been involved in this right from grassroots right up to the level we're at now are probably not going to have any outlet within any kind of reform. They're, they're going to get washed away by the next level of corporate reforming. So this is an issue that I've been really, as a you know, a journalist or whatever you want to call me, I've been following with great interest. Is Does this flag up any concerns or any thoughts with you guys? It's, it's really interesting because it's not an issue that I had been aware of, but hearing you both describe it, it absolutely seems crucial that, those, that this gets aired now at this stage, even though... Um, Ian is pessimistic, and I, you know, much as I'm optimistic about it, most things, I think it's going to be a, a long battle to get drug policy reform. But the fact that this element is circling already suggests that maybe we're wrong to be pessimistic. Maybe it's coming sooner than we thought, which is a good thing. But we would need to be prepared to make sure that those who have been harmed get the opportunity to benefit from the change. I think from a, what it kind of sparks in my mind is. Um, the, the problem we've got at the moment is all drug policy is held by the Home Office. And the Home Office have no experience of health. You know, their focus is around crime, um, amongst other things. And if, if it was moved to the Department of Health, if we genuinely, politically moved it from the Home Office to the Department of Health, there you have expertise, there you have a tradition of knowing how to manage health risk as well as uh, health problems. And um, what, what got me thinking about that is in all the policy that we have, uh, there is no user voice, mm. unlike in mental health, where you know the first thing the Department of Health would do is ensure, or NICE or whoever, would, would make sure either in a tokenistic way or in a real way that people who um, had the problem were included in part of the policy solution. And that's not been the case with the Home Office. Um, there is no one on the expert panel uh, overseeing licensing, the new licensing for medicinal cannabis, who is um, someone who's had a problem or um, even benefited from using cannabis. And that, again, is quite telling. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Richard, how much is, because this is a bit of a personal question in a way, because when, when you originally asked me to write for the BMJ, I was completely intimidated. I've written for most publications now. But the BMJ was like, really? Are you kidding? And the first piece I wrote was just absolute rubbish. And it was, it was just like completely discarded out of hand because it was pathetic, basically. But <laughs> so, so did you discard <laughs> Yeah, I was like, no. It's off the typewriter, into the bin. Um, but how much, on the back of what Ian said, how much can we listen to people of voice advocates that have got grassroots knowledge? Can they be experts? Ab- absolutely. Um and and their their voice is absolutely crucial to to all of these discussions. Yeah, and are they big enough to influence policymakers as well? I'm, I, well, I, I'm sh- I, I'm sure they 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 they're the, probably the strongest voices that that we have. I certainly think that if you listen to the um, testimony from um, um, people involved in the Anyone's Child organisation, which is parents um, who've lost children. Um, uh, to drugs, who um, but are now campaigning for drug policy reform and for for legal regulated control. These are incredibly powerful personal stories of, um, you know, the very worst um, um, impact of the current uh, policies that we have, the current laws we have, um, and in a similar way, I think people who are currently um, you, you know, use people who currently use drugs. Their their voice as well is in, is crucial to these discussions. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, it's interesting this case case about there being no voice of users in, in in these discussions and the fact that it's seen as a crime rather than a health issue. Um, so, two things I want to say. One was that the 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 new approach to knife crime I think has been a real real eye opener for some people that we've we've understood and other countries have taken on this public health approach so you you see it as a epidemic and you look for contacts and you you know you're looking to prevent um, and it, it's a totally different conceptual approach to the problem and and I'm very optimistic that things will improve as a result so I think that idea of shifting um, if one could find a way to move it from home office crime into into the health of health um, department, that that would be an enormously important shift. The other thing, just to say, is that we at the BMJ have got a, a very strong strategic um, push to involve patients in everything that we do. We have a patient included partnership, uh, patient partnership strategy across the whole journal, and it changes how we do things. We have patients input on everything we do now. Um, but the point you're making in is these. Is, is that the people who are using drugs are not considered in that same way? They're not. They're considered to have done something wrong, or to be doing something wrong. So they they aren't given that status within within the conversation. So we have um, we've done some work on on the, the business about sex, the sex industry. We've had sex workers right within the BMJ. I don't know, Rich, whether we've had um, drug users writing in the BMJ on this issue. But if not, we should do. Yeah. I think we could certainly have more. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say it comes back to the stigma that you were talking about, Ian, right at the beginning, doesn't it? That the drug users themselves don't seem to have a, de- a voice in this debate. 
but also that you know what Portugal did in 2001 by decriminalizing drug use and and making this a public health issue pri- pr- primarily rather than a crime issue um that um is completely legitimate um within you know global treaties that 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 control i mean all our drug policies come from the i think from these un treaties that say that drugs must be prohibited but it nowhere does it say that you have to punish criminally drug users or or lock them up so we could uh, you know countries are doing different things within international law and we could do different things within international law where uh, and perhaps those things would reduce the stigma and and give drug users a bigger voice in in these things that affect them so massively and, and just to build on that, Rich, to tell us about what's been going on in Portugal. I mean, I know because you've told me. But <laughs> um, the, the fact that, 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 that what's happened in Portugal has reduced deaths radically and changed the... Yep. Yeah, I mean, my, my understanding is that in, say, uh, Portugal had a, a big problem with, um, with drug deaths and then in 2001 removed all, cri- all criminal penalties for drug u- low-level non-violent drug users. Um, uh, so, so, so the problem is treated as a, as a health issue, and people with problems are diverted to health services rather than uh, than punished or locked up. And as I understand it, the impact of that has been relatively small, if any, increases in drug use, um, and uh, but massive decreases in deaths and in HIV transmission. Um, so it, it's and petty crime. Thanks. <laughs> I think just just to add to that, though, what was interesting from the United Nations report um, this week about Portugal was all those things are true, but uh, one of the unintended consequences, if I can use that term, is that um, drug use has become pathologised. And and that's something we need to be careful about. Yes, some people will need a health intervention, but not everybody requires a health intervention. You know, using drugs isn't a pathology for most people, it's it's not a problem. Um, you know, many people function quite well using drugs, um, and and use them occasionally for pleasure or use them regularly for pleasure. It doesn't make it a, a an illness. That's why it's fascinating to hear that you are open to more of a drug consumer voice because it's been so lacking. It really has. So my name is Chris. I work in public health um, and also have been involved in the criminal justice system for, for many years. Um, you presented very compelling arguments. Clearly, you feel that what you're um, suggesting is common sense and is something that the politicians need to catch up with. I don't think the politicians see it that way. The, the most recent reform of the legislation was the Psychoactive Substances Act. And the figures the politicians might present to you is that since that, there's been a significant fall in the number of people who are using psychoactive substances from 2.6% to 1.2% in in the year, and a fall um, from 16 to 15 9-year-olds of 07 to 0.4%. And locally, we've seen the head shops close down. We've seen a significant fall in the number of people using spice. So I think the politicians would say they listen very carefully to what was clearly a concern about people using new psychoactive substances, they pass legislation, they crack down on it, and the problem has some, to somewhat gone away. Now in Tower Hamlets, the resident survey that was conducted very recently, um, the fear about um, substances and substance misuse was number one of the residents' um, concerns, and locally the concern is around nitrous oxide use, and you can see the little whippy cartridges. So for the politicians, the answer is very simple. It needs more enforcement, it needs more people to go out there and restrict uh, the sale of nitrous oxide, because nitrous oxide at the moment is very easily available. You can buy it online, 
it's probably legal to buy it it's very difficult to actually stop it so although what you're saying is very compelling for the politicians what they're saying is actually we need more of you know enforcement so how do you actually try and get what you're saying is a very clear evidence-based argument um, from doctors to politicians who are very very fearful that local residents in Tower Hamlets and it's not alone as many other areas they're wanting more enforcement not less they don't want to see certainly sale they want to see restriction and the people are very concerned about their you know their neighbors their children um, about substances so I'm just interested that the psychoactive substance act was almost certainly the most recent piece of legislation and it's exactly opposite of what you're asking for He wants to start with that, then. That's a good question, I think. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is um, I think the the act was a mess, in short. You know, it's um, it, it certainly, I think, um, reduced young, curious teenagers from wandering into a head shop to get something. But what has become apparent is that it may have reduced the number of psychoactive substances available, but it's not reduced the potency of them. Um, and, you know, across this summer, you couldn't have failed to miss the um, various stories that have come out, particularly about some of the most vulnerable people, uh, whether they're prisoners, whether they're um, people who are very visible, like rough sleepers or homeless people. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's some reasonable evidence to show that the potency of, of some of these synthetics has gone up because of the PSA Act a couple of years ago and created more problems. Um, and of course, what a lot of the um, crime survey ironically misses is they don't include prisoners or homeless people um, and students for some bizarre reason. I don't know why students are left out of the party. But um, so it's those three key groups who you might think would be using um, those particular substances are, are left out. So again, politicians, I, I know the Home Office regularly points to that, you know, it's, it's reduced use, but it's not about simply reducing the number of people, is it? It's about reducing harm. Um, and quite often it's the most vulnerable who um, experience the most harm. And we see that in America as well, you know, with increasing use of synthetic opiates, whether that's fentanyl or carfentanyl. Um, when you ban one thing, it just produces another effect. I, I mean, that's really great to have your question. I was going to make a, a similar exactly that point that I, I think the the, the thing I, th I think we're seeing at the moment is um, the only types of cannabis available I'm talking about cannabis now uh, on the on the streets available to all of our kids at, at the drop of a hat including as you say nitrous oxide and those sort of things the only types of cannabis are incredibly potent and um, even if you were a, ch a child wanting to smoke or a parent wanting to advise your child that if they're going to smoke cannabis try to get something slightly less potent it's just not available so there isn't that option and and i i absolutely agree with the opioid and fentanyl thing that 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 i think the the prohibition of of the opioid side of things has driven these much more potent and and deadly um synthetic opioids onto the market um and and the spice likewise so we've we've all seen those terrible images of prisoners and and homeless people completely sort of stunned by this very high potency of spice. So I think it's really important that we look at what the Home Office is reporting um, because we just, it, numbers aren't going to give the full picture. Is this something that you followed, Richard? It um, yeah, the, I, 
I guess we, we should look at harms. Um, and one thing that springs to mind, though, is that the government commissioned research, I think it was published in 2014, looking internationally. Um, and the conclusion of that independent research or that government research was that um, it didn't make any difference uh, how severe the, the penalties were for drug use in different countries around the world. It didn't have any bearing on how much drug use went on. So... How how you ex- how you uh, communicate that to the people of Tower Hamlets? I I I don't know. That's a, a huge challenge because when it's happening on your doorstep and you want an answer and you want someone to do something, it's it's obviously very appealing to say, well, we'll we'll ban it and we'll anyone who's got nitrous oxide will lock them up. But um, the the evidence, the government's own evidence, doesn't seem to support this um, in general. And ironically, the government chose not to criminalise psychoactive substances to, to the consumer. It was done on the supply and effect, and it, it was a displacement effect again. It was just it just moved the bubble. All of a sudden, it went over to new PSAs, and then all of a sudden, it came back to traditional drugs like MDMA and things like that. So this. There is a, a weird circular logic to this that it does make sense to, to, if you don't look at the issue that prohibition works, but all it does is just the balloon effect again. It's just going to be keep shifting it along the rungs, um, and it's it's what we're seeing now, isn't it? In in prison, it's it's absolutely widespread. And and maybe in some ways it gets to the nub of it is to it's almost like being in a state of denial that humans are going to use drugs. You know, if if we can start from a stance that humans will always use drugs and approach it that way, then maybe we're on the first step to doing something a bit more rational. But at the moment, we've we've got kind of collective political denial, haven't we? You know, let's just arrest our way out of this. And, um, and that's why we end up with, you know, um, these canisters on the streets, in effect, in Tower Hamlets and um, elsewhere. Another great question. Thank you very much. Anybody else? There must be one, at least from Jennifer, surely. Go on, you can you can up your game on this. I'm going to come over to you whether you like it or not. Well, no, I was just going to comment that um, cat was also prohibited, made illegal in 2014, and it's the iron fist of prohibition that these substances become stronger when they're prohibited. So cat was a, a substance that people from East Africa would chew and... Um, like a stimulant and then it was the home office rescheduled it and now we see the potency rising so i think there are examples of where when we bring in a prohibition we can see an outcome um i also wanted to just comment like vancouver area network of drug users vandu is a famous um user-led organization which through direct action changed policy within vancouver and they're a great example johan hari writes beautifully about them in chasing the scream so they think there's really good models out there for drug user-led um uh, movements and the impact that they have i wanted to ask about i just wanted to make two points actually the public health argument i think is really great um but there's also an argument that historically drug policies have been used to reproduce social and class inequalities. And yes, we have prohibition, but that only applies to certain segments of society. And you see it most in the US, where now it's okay to say we can't arrest our way out of it when it's white people who use opiates. But when it was 
crack in black communities or perceived to be in black communities. Like, I think that there's an argument for the BMJ to become strongly saying, this is not just about public health, this is also about, this reproduces class and racial disparities. And that's what Falconer was speaking about this week when he came out and said, this has been a war on the poor. And so there is not, there is a broader argument to be made that this is about harm on a greater And bringing that to a different point that I've noticed this summer is the loop. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the loop, but it's run through Fiona Misham in um, Durham, and she's done drug testing at festivals. And it's an amazing harm reduction intervention, and it seems to be that it's gaining a lot of traction. When you say say drug testing, you mean um, quality? Yes, so people bring... A, something that they've purchased and they bring it and they a chemist tests it and then you can know exactly what the potency is and it's been amazing and the newspapers are writing lovely things about it but when we talk about putting in consumption rooms into Glasgow we get a very different response and I just wondered that, that's almost the same as the kind of ta- uh, the, 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 the whole social um, yeah. inequity isn't it the festival goers are the, the, the middle class and the, the user in Glasgow is not middle class. Yeah, and so you can see that this kind of moralization around these substances and who gets to take them and who doesn't is is a part of this. And we need to be more vocal about that because that is part of the issue. And it brings us back to what I was trying to say at the beginning, that this opens up conversations that really need to happen around inequalities that are reproduced in our society. Um and then just another thing, the, the only convention ever to use the word evil is the 1961 International Drug Control Convention. And we have conventions on genocide and torture, which, doesn't, which do not use that language. But when it comes to drugs, that's the only convention that uses the word evil. So I didn't ask any question at all. I just started lecturing. Um, but I think, yeah... Um, I guess that's it. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is why Jennifer's such a star on the on the previous podcast. She just riffs. We'd like you to write something, please, Jennifer. Will you on that? What you just said. <laughs> Doctors need to hear that. But oh yeah, we've got one more here. If we make this the last question, then if that's all right. Oh, two. Excuse me. My name's Tom, and I don't work in the field. Um, just about consumption rooms, um, I think maybe some people object to the idea, perhaps because it's uh, it's criminal supplies that are being consumed inside. So my response to that is perhaps we could return to what we used to do for decades and decades, and the BBC doesn't quite mention this very often, of prescribing injectables, and then maybe it wouldn't be such a problem. You wouldn't be uh, helping to promote criminal activity outside and giving money to dealers for these things that are consumed inside if we actually prescribed it as well. And I think that makes a very good point as to why, certainly with the BMJ, we've come to the conclusion that decriminalisation is actually not the answer um, because it leaves the supply in the hands of criminals and the quality is not controlled. And uh, so, so for all the reasons that seem obvious as a result of that, that legalisation seems the, the, the better ultimate step. In fact, decriminalisation, although it may seem like a first step, is actually in many ways um, 
going to leave people exposed to criminality in ways that we would rather they weren't. I mean, we could keep going. I mean, heroin-assisted treatment is a massive issue, and I think we're going to do a podcast in its own right on that because it's just so huge, I think. So if we could take one more, then... So I was actually going to ask a bit of a question about the supply side issue, which you'd kind of touched upon and I think you were referring to as well. I mean, we have, I think someone earlier said that, you know, senior people in the police seem to be kind of arguing for uh, decriminalisation maybe, but that wasn't the impression we were getting from Cressida Dick's comments about middle-class cocaine users. Uh, So I think there is a kind of there's still a tension there and there's, there's still a lot of moralising about drug use and this is now being applied to other groups who previously weren't part of the, the stigmatised group of drug users. So have you got any thoughts on what Cressida Dick said and how we how those kinds of arguments can be addressed and tensions within the police force about whether uh, decriminalisation or legalisation are good things? Well, I, I think there's overlap with what you were saying. You know, the, the problem that... Um, Cassidy Dix and other people have when they, when they make these statements is they're talking about symptoms, aren't they? You know, cocaine use or uh, use of spice are symptoms of something else going on and whether that's inequality, whether it's, um, you know, austerity cutting um, services and leaving people nowhere to go. You know, if, if you have money, then you can go to the Priory um, and get yourself sorted out, and there's a bit of cash aid to that as well. But you know, if if you have no money, no job, um, no hope, uh, you're very exposed, um, and that's what we've seen through the whole spice thing over the summer. So I think um, it's a neat distraction from some of the problems we have with um, you know public health budgets being cut and savagely cut, and it looks like they're going to continue to be cut. Um, and you know, it goes back to um, you know the the inverse care law, doesn't it? Those in the greatest need get the least in the way of services, and unfortunately, that's where we still are. Um, there is a lot of need, but diminishing services. If we can do just one quick wrap up from each of our guests, where do you think, Richard, we're going to be this time next year? This time ten years? Where do you think the timeline's going with drug policy reform? Um, well, hopefully we we will have fewer people um, dying and um, uh, less less harm overall. And I mean, I hope that by by a dec- you know by a decade's time, uh, low level drug users will will not receive criminal um, punishment. I think that's that's the first step. Um, but we should be looking all over the world at what other places are doing and um, take the best of of what they find. Ian, where do you think where do you think we're going? I think alcohol will become a class A drug. That, that's where my money is. Yeah. Got a round of applause on that bit. <laughs> As a non-drinker, I agree with that. And Fiona, I'm going to leave the last word to you. Well, I hope that even in the next few years, we will have a, a consensus within the medical profession and the nursing profession that um, that decriminalisation is is the way. Um, and I think while we watch very closely the other countries' um, experiments, that we will move towards a a, a legalised, reg, heavily regulated drug market for um, uh, for the, for illicit drugs, yeah, which won't be illicit, so they won't be called that anymore. <laughs> to change our terminology, definitely. If I can have a round of applause for our guests, please.
Well, where do you go from there? When we got such eminent professionals and then, yeah, I've now got to close it. So thank you so much for the guests on that. Absolutely amazing. Thank you for Jennifer again for setting us up with the Queen Mary University and hosting us. Right. And I'm going to finish on a few thank yous. Thank you so much to our producers, Tristan and Nikki. Thank you so much to, to the two Johns, our social media Johns. We've got John at the Distraction Pieces Network who hosts the Dream Factory. Please listen to his podcast. Thank you so much to John Cross at Leap UK. And as you know, I've got to do the Leap UK social media call out. So at UK Leap on Twitter, at UK Leap on Instagram, UKLeap.org on our Facebook, and our website is UKLeap.org as well. All right, I'm getting better at that, aren't I? I think I am. Thank you so much to everybody that listens. Thank you to My Name is Ad for the artwork. Thank you to Johnny Borrell for our theme music. Thank you to Scoobius Pip for having us on your Distraction Pieces Network. And go listen to all of them on the Distraction Pieces Network. They're amazing. And I think that's it. So I'm going to sign off. Thank you very, very much again for listening. If you can rate us on iTunes, brilliant. It all helps. Until next time, bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.